HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. The great state of Wisconsin is home to the only master cheesemaking program outside of Switzerland. Learn more about Wisconsin's cheesemaking history at wisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. Today's show, we welcome writer and culinary historian Laura Shapiro, author of the 2007 biography, Julia Child. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Laura about why Julia's legacy endures, whether good biographies must include what people ate. And we'll hear Laura's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always... In our first segment, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. And today's inspiration is Julia's life. By my count, there are more than a dozen books about Julia's life or parts thereof, whether it's her time in the OSS, her love of cats, the correspondence with her friend Davis Devoto in As Always Julia, or three comprehensive biographies. You can hear directly from Julia in her memoir, My Life in France, written with her great-nephew, Alex Prudhomme which was part of the basis for the movie Julie and Julia. Now, what makes someone's life worth writing about, and what can we learn from reading about them? Julia didn't find herself so fascinating. She was much more interested in learning about other people. Navel-gazing wasn't her thing. Given what's transpired in the food world since her death in 2004, she'd be surprised 
by the continued interest not just in what she did, but in who she was. Someone who has been a key contributor to this canon of literature seeking to chronicle, dissect, and understand who Julia Child was and what made her so influential is journalist, author, and culinary historian Laura Shapiro. Laura wrote the 2007 Penguin Lives biography titled simply Julia Child, which won an IACP award for literary food writing and is considered one of the definitive biographies about Julia. Most recently, she wrote the book What She Ate, which delves into the eating habits of some of history's most fascinating women to better understand what made them tick. She's here today to share her insights about Julia's legacy and give us some fresh perspective on looking at women's history through food. Welcome to the podcast, Laura. Thank you. It's great to be here. So let's start big picture. What got you into writing about this intersection between food and women and history? Well, I grew up as one of these people who's kind of obsessed with food, not so much about cooking, but about what everybody else was eating. I was always kind of looking onto the other kids' tray in the cafeteria to see if they took the jello or if they put the gravy on the mashed potatoes. I just I was just incessantly curious about what everyone was eating and to this day I'm always kind of peering into the grocery cart next to me in the supermarket line to see what everybody's bringing home. So so I have this kind of ongoing fascination with what people are eating. It's, it's really, it's, the, it's like the connection between food and people is the thing that interests me about food. So that was kind of running along in the back of my mind all my life. And then after college, when I became a journalist, and it was the great era of the second wave women's movement in the 70s, and I was writing about women all the time, it finally uh, struck me that most women throughout most of history, had spent most of their time dealing with food in the kitchen or pulling things out of the ground or plucking chickens or whatever they were doing. Their lives were all about food. And I thought, how come anybody writes about food without writing about women at the same time? It seems to me it's the same story. So I started putting it together in my mind, and that kind of... uh, segued into writing about women and cooking, which I've been doing ever since. And what was the derivation of how did you come to write this biography about Julia? What happened was that uh, a few years, shortly before her death, a friend of mine who who was a, a friend of Julia's and worked with her had said, you know, you should write a book about Julia. And I said, no, no, I would never write about somebody who's alive. That's just too constraining. It would make me nervous. And uh, and so I just wouldn't do it. And then really the day after Julia died, she called me and said, okay, now can you write about Julia? And I said, uh, but you know, there's already a very good biography of her out there. Do we need another one? And then I started thinking, you know, nobody ever said that about Thomas Jefferson. There's already a good book. Do we need another one? There are people where there's always room for another good book. So I talked to my editor, and she thought uh, it was a good idea for Penguin Lives. And the format of that is, is really perfect for this subject because, as I say, there was a comprehensive biography, and now there's another one. So it's not like I had to walk through every step of her life, but what you do is you kind of zero in on facets of the life that that interested me in particular. So I could put together a portrait of Julia just on the things that uh, that struck me as important and interesting, 
and really just as important, I could leave out the things that I'm not very good at. Julia's whole relation to classic French cooking is incredibly important, and many people have talked about it. I don't know a thing about classic French cooking. I couldn't begin to write about that. So I wrote about other things. And uh, so for me, it was a great format for a book, and I just loved working on it. So in that vein, I think this relates to it because I just was not going to ask you to summarize the entire book that you wrote. But I think this relates to what you were just saying. I was going to ask you why you think interest in Julia and her work and her legacy is not adored. And I, I assume that's part of what you wrote about in the biography. Yeah, she, I mean, now we've had so much cooking on television. But if you go back, and of course, thanks to the miracles of technology, you can go back to Julia's uh, work on television. You see that uh, she was absolutely distinctive. Before her, there was nobody like that. And since then, there has never been somebody like that. It's kind of hard to sum up, but she was naturally charismatic, naturally responsive to that camera. When, it's like when the, when the TV light went on and the camera was on her, she just opened up like a flower and reached out and, and reached people. It's something that, you know, the great TV stars, Lucille Ball or some great newscaster, they had it. But we had never seen it on somebody who, uh, a woman certainly, who just stood up there on television. She didn't act a part. She didn't recite a script. She was just herself. But as herself, she had this unbelievable appeal. People with no interest in food would turn this on and just love Julia. And if you look at the fan mail, which is all collected with her other stuff, you just see, Julia, we love you. Julia, I don't care about food, but I watch everything. Julia, I love you. Julia, I love you. That's the message. How many TV cooks, how many TV people ever elicit that kind of response? So part of it was her unbelievable talent for television. And another thing was uh, how she defined herself as a television personality, and that is that she was a teacher, and she was one of the great, great teachers. You know if you've ever had a great, great teacher, they never talk down to you. They raise you up to their level. They, they show you something great and distinguished and wonderful, and you, you expand. Your mind grows. You reach to that. You get larger than yourself, and that's what she was able to make people do. So I think that uh, when, when you have those qualities and you focus them on food, which and that truly had never happened on television until she came on, you have you have an incredible combination and a, and a kind of stirring of public appreciation for what food and cooking is, and she was able to make that happen. Now, I don't know if people really attend to that anymore. I had kind of a wake-up moment when I was doing the research for the book, which was, uh, I was doing that research just in the year or two after she had died. I was at the Schlesinger Library, and there was a young man working at the library whose job was to uh, do your uh, photocopying. And I was having him photocopy mountains of things. And he was doing that, and he said to me, uh, can I ask you something? And I said, sure. And he said, why was she important? It had never occurred to me that a young person or any person would ask that question about Julia Child. But the fact is, time had gone on. Her shows had been eclipsed by other shows, and she was not a name and a life that everybody knew at that time. So so I realized that uh, 
we have to keep telling them. We have to keep writing the books. We have to keep remembering her and putting that legacy out there because it's a great legacy about the importance of food and the uh, the unimportance of television ego. The, the, as, as you said, she was not a person of... Uh, well, she had a healthy ego, but she, what she wasn't was a narcissist. It was never about her. It was always about the food. I think we can still learn so much from reading and watching her. Well, and I, I think that's an excellent point about her being a teacher. And if you actually equate, if everyone who's listening thinks back to their favorite teachers from whether it's you know elementary school or high school or university, there there's usually a, charis, a charismatic connection. But like you said, it doesn't come from being necessarily a narcissist. It comes from that passion that you have for your subject matter and just naturally being the best kind of communicator. And I think that Julia had that. And as you say, it's amazing because to have that for a live audience is one thing. To have it with this sterile, you know, thing made of metal and glass staring you in the face is a, is a whole other kettle of fish. Absolutely. And I remember she got a letter once from a, a colleague of hers, somebody who was about to go on television cooking for the first time. She said, oh, I'm so nervous. Julia wrote back, she said, if you're nervous, think about the food. The minute you focus on the food, everything will be okay. And that, of course, was her entire secret. I mean, it wasn't a secret. It came naturally to her. Think about the food. And everything went away. And, then, and you're right. Then the food is at center stage, and that's what you're looking at. I thought you were going to say, she said, think about how the food feels. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to get eaten. Right. Um, so one thing I want to ask you that I don't think I've ever asked anyone else or, or very often, but I think I'm really interested to hear what you say, is do you think there are things like, are there a top three things or just key things that you think people do frequently misunderstand or misconstrue about Julia, given, given who she was and all that's been written? Yeah, I do. I think um, just thinking about things I've read when people hear that she was in the OSS, for instance, which of course went on to become the CIA during the war, she uh, she you know she was posted to uh, what is now Sri Lanka, and she handled all this high level material and so forth. And and you often hear, oh, she was a spy. Well, the idea of Julia being a spy, not only the fact that she's over six feet tall, this is not somebody who's going to disappear <laughs> incognito, into a crowd, yeah. right? But the other thing is that she was just so open and and herself under all circumstances she could no sooner disguise herself or tell a lie <laughs> than she could fly so she would have been the worst spy on earth she could keep secrets that's for sure because she did handle classified material she was a file clerk a, a high-end file clerk but that was her work so so whenever i hear this oh she was a spy i think that's nuts the other thing that people kind of think that they remember anyway is is uh is to characterize her as a clown or you know she 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 did all this stuff to be funny she she was uh i don't know she she was very much wanted the show to be to make cooking accessible absolutely but as we were saying it was teaching first and the the idea that she uh, did had made mistakes or or uh, flubbed things or lost her place or couldn't couldn't find the uh, the lid to the pot. I mean, those things happened once in a while. They kind of drove her crazy in the early years of the French Chef. They couldn't edit. They didn't have time to kind of redo the tapes, and they didn't have enough tape. 
So so everything had to be done in one live take, and there were mistakes. And and uh, that drove her crazy. She she wanted she wanted people to to see something done well and done the best way she could do it. And and yet she knew that people loved the mistakes. So she kind of rolled with it when they happened. But but there was no way in the world uh, that she was doing this stuff on purpose. And if she was funny, it's because she was an amusing person with a great sense of humor, and she enjoyed what she was doing. She poured all of that, you know, this is life and this is a good time. She poured that into the cooking and that is what came out. This idea that she was a clown used to drive Paul crazy. He used to, he wrote to his brother once, he said, people say she's so funny and stuff. Why don't they talk about the great work she's doing and what a revolution this is in teaching cooking? And, and the fact is, that is what they should have been writing about. And then the, finally, the thing you hear all the time is that she dropped a chicken. She dropped a chicken on the floor and she picked it up and she said, you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? Well, she never dropped a chicken. What she dropped was a, uh, a kind of mashed potato cake, which she was trying to flip in the pan and she did it too soon and it, and it fell apart in shreds on the stove and she gathered them together and put it back in the pan and she said, you're alone in the kitchen. Who is going to see? So this is a great moment. It's a great Julia moment and a great Julia rescue. But over the years, it became this kind of apocryphal thing. Oh, I remember seeing her drop the chicken. Or I remember seeing her drop a 25-pound turkey off the platter onto the floor. People remember all these things. None of them happened. It was a potato cake. <laughs> Yes, no, and thank you. Just we have that as the lead into our Julia moment. But it, it, as someone who who listens to people's thoughts on this, you're absolutely right. And so I want to ask you actually in follow up to that is why why is why do you think there is this big mystique and and fascination whether it's people obsessing about whether she might have been a spy or this you know, you hate to burst people's bubble because it's usually such a passionate idea that they have that they know they saw her drop a whole chicken or a small child or a pig or whatever it is. And it's very deflating to be like, well, actually, she just dropped some potato mash on the stove. But where do you think this this kind of it's both a mystique, but it's it's more than that. It's like this deep desire to be connected to these incidents. I think it's because we think we know her. And in fact, to a huge degree, we do know her. Julia was one of these people who was the same at home, on television. It was the same person. She really didn't put on anything. She was, you know, uh, professional. But it wasn't a show. It wasn't a script. It wasn't a display of a persona. It was her. And that came across so powerfully. I think people got the feeling that that they were they were there she was in their living room and yet it was television they knew that it was on a screen so it's this strange kind of uh mix of the real and the artificial i think maybe there's room for your imagination in there and oh she's a real person she must have made this mistake and then they love her so much and and she's important to them so this Everything becomes larger than life. She herself was larger than life. She towered over that kitchen counter. She was a big person on the screen. And I think everything about her just got big in memory, including these flops and mistakes. That's the only thing I can think of. But you're right. I've talked to so many people who say, but I remember it. I keep saying, but you didn't. 
<laughs> Show me the videotape. No. Well, and I think the, certainly the parody that Dan Aykroyd did, that catapulted it. And even some people haven't t- think they've seen that, but haven't seen it. And then it all just got mashed together with different parodies and things like that, right? Actually, I think you may be right. I think maybe that Dan Aykroyd thing did make a contribution to like public memory about Julia. So they have real Julia, they have parody Julia, and there's a chicken at the center of parody Julia. And maybe it all kind of gets melded into memory through that. (laughs) Well, there's always a chicken in everyone's memory, I guess. (laughs) So one thing I remember firsthand from, um, you know, when she was older and when the internet was in its infancy was, which is kind of funny because I think maybe you could speak to this, is Julia was both a very public person, but then she was private to an extent. She would have, I don't think, liked this whole era of celebrities sharing literally every detail about their life and she certainly wouldn't have been posting pictures of herself in lingerie or anything like that so she was very you know wary of the internet and wasn't quite convinced this was like god's gift to humanity and so i also heard that you're not super big on social media so i was curious what you think julia would have made of the wider twitterverse well you know it's funny she did have a real uh comfort with the new she when when the tv show went to color she was all in favor of that and new ideas for for doing the program she was very in favor of. When uh, email came in, she adapted email much to the distress of her later biographers because the letters that she had saved all her life suddenly disappear, and now it's all, you know, emails. But uh, so, so she has an openness, despite her age, wide open to new things. But this idea of social media sharing everything Absolutely not. She, um, what I think she would have liked about things like Instagram is this sense that the whole world was talking about food. That was the great goal of, of bringing a, a French sensibility and a French life sensibility to teaching cooking. Her view of the French was that they had food right at the center of everything that was important in life, and she wanted Americans to have that too. And now, if you look at Instagram, it seems like all people do is talk about food and take pictures of it. So she would have liked to see food at the forefront of of national talk and imagination. But the superficiality of it, the, the fact that people aren't really learning anything, they're just sort of taking pictures of it, that would have driven her crazy. I think she would have seen it as a wasted opportunity. You mentioned Julie Julia, the Nora Ephron movie. When when uh, that um, the Julie did her blog project of cooking her way through mastering the art of French cooking, which was one of the great ideas for a blog, I got to say. But to my mind, she really botched it because uh, when you look at that blog, all she says, and you see it in the movie too, all she says is, well, I worked so hard to make so-and-so, and it came out great. It was delicious. Or I worked so hard to make so-and-so, and it really didn't work. I didn't like – she doesn't learn anything. She doesn't uh, – no, nothing happens in that. And Julia never did like that blog, and I think that's it. I don't think she resented that somebody was doing that with the book. She would have loved to see somebody do that with the book and learn all the things that Julia had put in there. That book is a guide to learning how to do French cooking. And if somebody had made that clear in a blog, I think she would have been all for it. So I think it's not so much the medium itself, but what people are making of it or are failing to make of it that Julia would have, would have disapproved of. 
I, I yeah, I think that's a great analysis, and that must be one of the most obsessed about points of did Julia approve or not approve of what Julia Powell did, and you know dissecting that one comment that she made to the New York Times about you know well I'm not sure she's so serious, and what did she mean by that? But I think that's a really good explanation, and and as much as Julia loved other people, I don't think she loved other people who were very obsessed and focused on themselves versus people who were sharing, communicating, teaching. Um, And, you know, it's interesting because Dory Greenspan was on and I asked her a a similar question in a different way because she's so adept at uh, social media in in a very positive way. And she said something that you just made me think of that I bet Julia would have liked is she's like, the most amazing thing to me, Todd, is that it gives me a two-way communication with my readers and my audience. And that feedback I could have never gotten before in that way. And I was thinking, I bet Julia would have liked that part, do you think? Yes, yes, I do. And if people could have pointed out uh, things that didn't work or or better yet, said, you know, oh, I'm a nervous cook, but I made this and my husband loved it. Oh, she would have just, you know, been overjoyed. So, yes. And she had quite a bit of that because she got so much mail. But but you're right, that kind of instantaneous thing. Although, of course, it would have taken so much time to deal with. And as she often says, she doesn't even have time to, you know, cut her toenails. She's so busy with everything she was doing. So the time factor would have been an issue. But, yes, I think absolutely that connection with the real world of people cooking at home, she would have really appreciated that chance to be closer to people. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back to talk to Laura about her recent research and writing on women's histories beyond Julia. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Did you know that 90% of Wisconsin's milk is made into cheese? And this is not just any milk. When Swiss, German, and Italian cheesemakers first settled into Wisconsin, they chose their new home because of the special terroir of the region. Its soil and water are nurtured by the goodness of glacial sediment, and those elements lend themselves to the very best milk. Today, Wisconsin produces 25% of all cheeses made in the U.S., and Wisconsin cheeses have won more awards than any other state or country in the world. How do they do it? Wisconsin cheesemakers combine their heritage and tradition with nonstop innovation. They were the first state to establish cheese-grade standards and the first to require that every cheese plant be overseen by a licensed cheesemaker. Wisconsin is the only place outside of Europe where one can pursue an elite master cheesemaker certification. All of these impeccably high standards mean Wisconsin produces more than 48% of the nation's specialty cheese. Are you enjoying this show? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. I'm Luke Griffin, and I'm the host of Bushwick Podcast. Each week, we share the remarkable stories of how artists, activists, and entrepreneurs collide in Bushwick, a special Brooklyn neighborhood that's changing faster by the day. You can find Bushwick Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back. We're talking to author, culinary historian Laura Shapiro about her approach to biographical writing about important women, including Julia. 
So, Laura, I was fascinated. I loved your talk at the most recent Oxford Symposium on Food and Drink. And the symposium's theme that year was Food and Power. And you gave this really fascinating and very funny presentation, but serious and funny. So you have to tell the audience, what does Alice Waters and the temperance movement leader Frances Willard have in common? Well, I know it's a stretch, but I... um... I've always been fascinated by Alice and her kind of amazing consistency of purpose. As you know, when she started Chez Panisse and she started thinking about the thing we now call the food revolution, the the emphasis on uh, farmer's markets and you cook at home and you shop carefully and you attend to the earth and you teach your children, that whole thing, that's Alice's message. She has been saying nothing else for 40 years and it's a hugely important, life-changing message that has come across with enormous ramifications. So I started, uh, so I've been thinking about Alice, and it seems to me that as a leader and as a, as a woman and as an inspiring figure, she's, she's, uh, she's not just an important person in the trajectory of great culinary women, there's another trajectory that she's also part of, and that are the great women revolutionaries, rebels and revolutionaries of the 19th century. These women who brought us the suffrage movement, and they were abolitionists, and they, they worked on, um, on housing and, and fair labor and employment. All the, the great progressive issues of the 19th century, women were deeply involved in those. And one of the women who was most important in that was, amazingly, Frances E. Willard, who was famous uh, for being the very, very charismatic, powerful leader of the Women's Christian Temperance Union. So temperance was her cause. She went around the country and the world urging people to stay away from alcohol. This is not Alice's cause. I think we know that. She, she is not begging people to stay away from alcohol. But... What Frances Willard did with that issue was really amazing. She was against alcohol, but in the larger sense, to her, it was kind of a wedge issue. You use that to get in the door of all these reform movements, and then once you're in there, she fought like crazy for far more to us interesting and progressive movements. She was very, very progressive on suffrage and on... On, uh, on housing, on labor, and children's work hours, all these, all these huge issues, things about purity and morality that, that you would think she would be, you know, very conservative. She was not. She was a really out-there feminist, but with, but with uh, this anti-alcohol theme, that was the thing that had brought her into all that, and it stayed, but it was, did not become the most important thing. Alice, similarly, She's in there with this, um, you know, organic, grow your own tomatoes, uh, this, this, deep, uh, this deep relationship to the foods of the earth. And she wants everybody to have it. And she wants it in this kind of wildly unrealistic way. She, she can go to, you know, some city in, in the Arctic and tell people they should be growing cabbages in their greenhouses. That's what, you know, she would do that because she's, She's, uh, she kind of operates in her own sphere of the world. But, but when you look at the things she's saying, you realize they are all about women taking power. They are all about 
standing up against the food industry. They're all about fresh food and farmer's markets and teaching children to stay away from junk and not get everything from a box, not get everything from a package. Her real message, her underlying message that has gone through every single thing she's ever said since 1971 is, don't let the food industry walk away with our relationship to food. So so in that sense, I see these two, I would call them very progressive revolutionary leaders, Frances E. Willard and Alice, very far apart on, on some of the big issues, but sisters on some of the really important, powerful ideas about about women and leadership and what women should be doing in the world. And, and I remember in your talk, Anthony Bourdain was in there somewhere, and we're using him as contrast um, of, of the male sphere. Or how? Just remind me how you sort of were talking about him. It was more in relation, obviously, to Alice, his contemporary, than, than Francis Willard. Right. What I was uh, – the point I was making is that uh, – in the in the seventies, when Alice was kind of coming to the fore, and and she had, she and her friends had opened Chez Panisse, everything came out of that ferment of Berkeley in the sixties and seventies. Alice was very very politically minded, it, and it was uh, it was it was you know anti war and that Berkeley community, the sense of other people that you're cooking for other people, and very much about feminism and the women's movement. So I would say, and in fact, in an earlier draft of that paper, I put I had Julia in there too. That Julia and Alice, as these these two kind of great, they're separated by age, but in a sense, they are the ones that got the food revolution going in this country, and both of them based their ideas on uh, what I would call the values we associate with women: home cooking. You, you bring in the food, you're cooking for your family, you're creating that kind of uh, food, family, people connection in your own life, and very much you are saying to the food industry, no, you don't take this over for us, we are doing it, and we're standing up to that. So these are values that I think are very, what I would call f- feminine or stereotypically feminine values of, of uh, home and family. And they are the values that got the uh, food revolution up and running. In America, as soon as uh, food became super popular and chefs are appearing on magazine covers and and they go on television, the, the, we, we think of that also as the food revolution, but it's kind of the food revolution taking a swerve into the commercial world the money world, the 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 kind of uh, superficial glamour and power world, the world of chefs and opening twenty five restaurants at a time, and and you know who can who can be the bigger personality. Those are the values we associate with men. Again, I'm talking big big stereotypes. It's not every man, but they're in general these stereotypical values. So I think that's what has happened to the food revolution. It's sort of swerved over there. Doesn't mean that the Alice and the kind of women's part of the food revolution is gone, not at all. But it's like there's been a shift of public interest. More people, I would say, were interested in Tony Bourdain before his death than uh, than probably even remembered Alice, who had started everything everything so so early. And you know, there's this sort of vogue of of uh, 
calling Alice an elitist. Well, she brings it on in a way, but the fact is her message has always been about, you know, doing it yourself and keeping it at home. And if she's an elitist, this is not how she has dealt with her fame and, and whatever fortune she have, she's made. She's not opened restaurants in Las Vegas and airports and things like that. She's got Chez Panisse, and then she created the Chez Panisse Foundation, which started this you know enormous program called the Edible Schoolyard, which is all about teaching children. In other words, those are her values. It's what she's always done. So... So, uh, you know, uh, while her more politically astute, supposedly, colleagues are busy, uh, you know, promoting somebody's, somebody's, you know, bouillon cubes or, or some kind of canned product or packaged product, and they're making money and hand over fist any way they can, she is sticking to what she cares about. So I strongly defend her on that point. <laughs> yeah, I think it's that... that- issue of, you know, Anthony Bourdain was was a rock star. And it, it was about that cult of personality, which Julia shared, and Alice hasn't really cultivated a cult of personality in that sense. And then there's a certain sort of uh, lecturing tone to her message that I think, you know, this comes into the debate about women in politics, too, which is how one gender needs to be to sort of get their message across and how it can be perceived, which, which I think you're sort of um, dissecting quite well. No, that was exactly it. You're right. You make a good point about the tone. It, it, Alice was, is, was and is always very busy teaching people what they, she firmly believes what they should be doing about food. And Tony Burdain famously said uh, she was Paul Pot in a moo moo, which was not nice, but, uh, but very funny. But, uh, she, but um, <laughs> so it's exactly the opposite. The fact is their ideas on food aren't that far apart. You know, they were, they're both basically saying the same things. They just had entirely different styles. Yeah, I know. And it shows you what, what, a, what a difference, you know, if you line up sort of Alice and Julia and Anthony Bourdain, and what a difference both in style and how the messages come across and are perceived. Um, Although no one talks about Anthony Bourdain dropping chickens, although that probably happened. Right. (laughs) So let's talk about your most recent book, uh, What She Ate, Six Remarkable Women, The Food That Tells Their Stories. And um, because this this is where you go outside of chefs and, 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 and food world personalities. So tell me, tell us who the six women are and how you came to choose them and why did you focus on what they ate? Well, this really, in a funny way, it came out of having written the book about Julia, which I loved working on so much. Really, when that was done, all I wanted to do was write another book about Julia, but they don't let you do that. So I was looking around for another kind of food world personality that would be fun to write about. As you know, uh, there isn't another Julia, and there are very few people like her. I finally uh, realized that you could write a book about a woman and food even if she hadn't written a cookbook, even if she were not a chef. You don't have to be Julia Child to have a food life or a, or a food story. We all do. We all have a relationship with food. And I realized once I got this idea, I kind of went nuts. I realized you, you don't even have to like to eat. You don't even have to remember what you had for dinner last night or five minutes ago. We all have a relationship with food. It's the first relationship we have, and it lasts till the day we die. So once I started thinking about that, I realized I could find interesting women, women who just were interesting for some reason, some, some reason that appealed to me. And if 
there was some kind of documentation about what they ate or how they felt about food or the role of food in their lives, that could be a biography. You could use food as a point of access into a life. As you know, we're now, there's so much culinary history. Food is a point of access into every single thing in the entire world and every aspect of history. Why not every aspect of an individual's life? To, to me, that um, it's the most kind of immediate and interesting question you can ask about somebody. What are you eating? This goes back to my looking over on the cafeteria tray and wondering why that person is having jello. What are you eating? Why did you choose it? What do you think about it? How does it taste to you? Are you ever going to eat it again? Who made it for you? What about that that kid sitting across from you? You know, is he having the jello too? Do you have that in common? I wanted to ask all those questions. So I set about looking for a few women uh, that, that, that could sort of stand up to this treatment. And they um, they had to be women who had left some kind of document trail about their food lives, you know, letters, diaries, other biographies. There had to be something somewhere. So it meant that they were not going to be, you know, the lady who lives across the hall or, or somebody's, somebody's uh, servant or, or it's going to be the kind of woman whose grandchildren collected her letters and gave them to a library or the kind of woman about whom somebody has written a biography. And so there's a lot, there's an archival uh, source somewhere. So I started looking around and I found that I actually had a couple of these people in my filing cabinet. They were women who had interested me for a long time. And it turned out this was going to be the moment I could write about them. So one of my women, for instance, is the British novelist Barbara Pym, who wrote uh, after World War II, she wrote these wonderful novels uh, set in a kind of women's world of sort of the clergy and village life and so forth. And they're full of food, and they're, it's very revealing food. It is not the horrible food we associate with post-war Britain. It's kind of wonderful food, and it's a very real world. So, And I love these books. So Barbara Pym uh, got into this. And um, then I, uh, I was reading... I was reading something about Eleanor Roosevelt. I was reading about the Roosevelt White House. It turned out that the food in the FDR White House was known far and near as the worst anybody had ever eaten. It it was the worst food that had ever been on a presidential table, and everybody knew it at the time. People talked about it. They wrote about it. And everybody kind of blamed Eleanor. They said she was so busy doing all her projects and her good causes, she didn't care about food, and that meant that uh, you know you would you would go to the White House for dinner and get this horrendous stuff. I don't know. I knew a little about Eleanor Roosevelt. That explanation didn't sound right to me, and I sort of started poking around in her life and came up with something a little different. And it was again Eleanor Roosevelt is a great person to write about and. Talk about documents. There's like 50 million books about the Roosevelt and all their papers and things are collected. So, so there was a huge amount of research. Then I did uh, Dorothy Wordsworth, uh, the sister of the poet, was one of the first people I started looking at. And again, it's a life that has been written about. And in her most famous work, which is the Grasmere Journal that she wrote about the years that she spent taking care of William in this Dove Cottage, which, of course, you can still visit in the Lake District, and that her Grasmere Journal is full of the meals that they ate. And I was looking at that, 
And then in a biography of her, I kind of skipped ahead and I saw that some 20 years later, she's writing about food again in her diary, but it is very different. She has a completely different, the food is different, her attitude towards it is different. Something had changed. This kind of sacred, beautiful life she was having with her brother, 20 years later, it's all kind of disintegrating. And uh, it was all about the food. So I I started digging around in that. So she became one of the people. Then there was one woman who was a food professional. That was Rosa Lewis. If you remember, it uh, was a BBC, then a Masterpiece Theater series years ago called The Duchess of Duke Street about this uh, kind of scullery maid who had learned French cooking and become this very high-end caterer. She bought the Cavendish Hotel in London and became this kind of figure in London, in Edwardian London. That was Rosa Lewis, and the series was loosely based on her life. But if you read about her without the TV series, it's actually much more interesting. She was a real example of somebody who used food to change her class. She did start as a scullery maid, and she ended up with lots of money going around in Paris gowns and dining with lords and ladies. But she didn't give in completely. What she, she, she retained her Cockney accent that she had been born with. In those days, you could change your accent. If you wanted to change class, you changed your accent. She didn't do that. She could have, but she didn't. So it's like she's telling the world, okay, I am who I am. I'm up here, I have the money, I have the clothes, I I run this hotel, but I'm still me. It's kind of an amazing story of uh, a woman who insists on who she is and by clinging to class, overcomes class. Then I have a, uh, really the sort of downer in the the story. I (laughs) I was going to say left turn, but okay, go ahead. (laughs) I did uh, Eva Braun. Uh, Hitler's mistress, and for about five minutes, his wife. And I uh, I had come across a very serious, good, substantive biography of her, and I happened to read it, and I realized that the sort of big question about Eva Braun, i.e., how on earth could you do this? She was not a big Nazi. She, she was sort of an apolitical teenager when she happened to meet Hitler, 20 years older, and, and fell in love with him. You just think, what? And... Uh, but food, her her place in his life, her place sitting next to him at the at the dining table at Berchtesgaden, where he spent as much time as he could up in the Alps, that was a huge part of the identity that she sought. She was kept uh, hidden. Hitler did not want to be seen with this, you know, woman half his age that he wasn't married to. This was not a good look. So he, she was, she was always kept out of sight. But when he was dining with his entourage and and just their kind of family and friends, they would be at this table, and she could play this role. That was why she stayed with him. That was what she loved was this role that she could play, and she could play it at the table in the world of food. That was very very striking, and of course. While they're all sitting around uh, at the, you know, outside the door, down the mountain, you're having death and destruction on a, a vast scale, never before seen. And and inside at this table, everybody is just sort of sharing their lives. And you know the great 
cliche about food. It brings us together. It makes us a family. Well, it did that for Nazis, too. They were a family. They were the most evil, horrible family you can think of. But in their eyes, they were united in a great cause. And they Ava's presence at the table as the kind of feminine influence at the table, it's like it made everything okay. She she humanized everything. The, the presence of the female kind of outweighed the presence of Hitler at that table and made everybody be able to live with their conscience. So I wanted, in this chapter, I wanted to kind of get at that, the, the, the work that she did unknowingly. She was, she was kind of dense, but, but that was the effect that it had, uh, I think, um, among those people. And then uh, finally, my last person is Helen Gurley Brown, who was, of course, the editor of Cosmopolitan for many years, and she wrote Sex and the Single Girl. And her relation to food, which she wrote up and talked about all the time, was basically summed up in one great commandment, or maybe it was all ten commandments, which was don't eat. Don't gain even one ounce. If you gain even one ounce, no man will ever look at you and your life will be worthless. So she thought of herself as a feminist, and in some ways she was. She believed in all the things feminists believed. She thought you could fly to the moon, you could be president, you could do anything you wanted. But unless you did that, knowing that you had along the way attracted a man, if you didn't have a man attracted to you, None of none of the other things counted. You were you were worthless. So it was this peculiar, very distorted, kind of playboy view of of feminism. Very strange. And uh, if you've ever seen a picture of her, especially in later years, she's very very skinny, very thin, with this wig sort of askew, and uh, she she became a kind of sad, awful figure. But this message that she promoted in Cosmopolitan for all those years, and she made a huge success out of that magazine. She was one of the publishing success stories of, of the of the end of the post you know post war publishing industry. She really redefined women's magazines, but she redefined them in a very damaging way. Well, that's a great primer on what she ate. And uh, for more on that, you'll have to check out Laura's book. So do you think what you eat defines who you are? What's your favorite food biography or memoir? Send us an email or even a voice memo to contact juliachildfoundation.org to let us know. After the break, Laura's going to reveal our Julia moment. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia Moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. So, Laura, what, what's your Julia moment? During the 80s and 90s, I was writing about food for Newsweek, and, and in that capacity, you know, Julia was always very open to the press and could always be called. So I met her a few times, and I interviewed her a couple of times, and it was great, but I would never have said I knew her. After she died and I started working on the book, I would go to the Schlesinger Library where all her papers are, and they would they bring out box after box of, basically it was Julia's mail, just and she kept everything she wrote. She kept copies of her own letters. 
So you're reading that, and you're reading drafts of her writing. It's all there. And I would sit there in the library with these boxes and every day pull out a file and read, read Julia, just her, her words, her voice, herself coming across in these letters. She wasn't writing for posterity. She was writing to a friend and telling her about life. As I read, I felt as though Julia were rising up in front of me. I could, I could feel her presence. She was there. The, it was reading her words that introduced me to Julia far more so than having actually met her in person. This, uh, this person with this wonderful sense of humor, this very wide-ranging intelligence, this constant ability to question her assumptions and to think beyond what she was given, her ambitions, which were always very generous, and they were not about aggrandizing herself. They were about what she could give and how she could how she could uh, just introduce Americans to the things that mattered most to her. And then her joy, her joy at being married to Paul, which was the greatest happiness of her life. I, I just, I, I got to know this person, this wonderful person. And since then, so that was 2005 and six. I was doing that work 15 years ago. It, it's never left me. I feel as though Julia is with me. So that's the gift that she gave me, was that kind of mind, that kind of presence, that intelligence, that wit, that that kind of love for life and the world. She she shed that all around, and, and she gave it to me. So, so my Julia moment is all wrapped up in those boxes at the Schlesinger Library. Well, that's lovely, Laura. Well, thank you for that, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you. It's fun to talk about Julia. <laughs> Always, yes. And thanks everyone else for listening. So you're not going to find Laura Shapiro on social media. You'll have to get your news about her from us. Search at Julia Child on Facebook or at Julia Child Foundation, all one word on Instagram. It's at Julia Child JCF and I'm at T. Shulkin on Twitter. For more about Laura Shapiro and her work, she is on the internet. You can check out laurashapirowriter.com. Her most recent book is What She Ate, Six Remarkable Women and the Food That Tells Their Stories, which was published in 2017 by Viking and in paperback from Penguin Books. Look for it online or at your favorite bookseller. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer at the foundation, Lauren Selkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Amanda Wang. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Veltorni. Please give us a review. It really helps new listeners discover the show. And if you can do it on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, that helps too. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, 
at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.